Second Samuel 19.11. And King David sent to Zadok and to Abiathar the priest, saying, Speak unto the elders of Judah, saying, Why are ye the last to bring the king back to his house? Seeing the speech of all Israel is come to the king to bring him to his house. Ye are my brethren, ye are my bone and my flesh. Wherefore then are ye the last to bring back the king? And say ye to Amasa, Art thou not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if thou be not captain of the host before me continually in the room of Joab. And he bowed the heart of all the men of Judah, even as the heart of one man, so that they sent unto the king, saying, Return thou and all thy servants. So the king returned and came to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king, to bring the king over the Jordan. Well, most of you know that I have been speaking for quite some time on the life of David. We have been considering David and his life in, for some time now. Both the, the high points and the low points. It reminded me of <clears throat> what statement has been attributed to Cromwell, the Lord Protector in the 17th century of Great Britain when he was about to have his painting done and how he challenged the artist, the painter, to not paint anything but what he actually saw and to leave nothing out, to leave in all the roughness, all the pimples, the warts, everything as you see me. I don't want you making me on your portrait of me anything other than what I am. Of course, many have said that the statement was simply, paint me true, warts and all. Well, that's what we've been seeing in the life of David. God, the Holy Spirit, of course, is the truest painter of all. And he has painted David with all his shining, wonderful points. And he has painted him with his warts and his pimples, setting them before us. So that we know and have been learning that even though David was even by the mouth of God pronounced to be a man after his own heart, he was nonetheless a wicked sinner. And we looked at that quite some time ago, his terrible sin. But in a sense, we're still looking at it because of the ramifications, the chastening hand of God in his life that continues to rest upon David. And he knows that. And in this passage that we've just read, we're going to see something of a turnaround in David's behavior. After we witnessed him weeping <clears throat> inconsolably over the death of his wicked son Absalom. And without denying the proper love for our children according to the flesh, nonetheless, nonetheless, it is, it is a bad thing to do to be questioning, challenging God 
in the destruction of the wicked, even if it is those according to our flesh. But David came through that. And now we find him here, making some determinations, some decisions, that hopefully in his mind that is, hopefully would lead to the restoration of the nation over whom God had made him king, had anointed him, as well as appointed him. One writer, a contemporary writer, said this, civil wars are born in confusion, and when they die, that confusion is often worse confounded. Israel did not instantly reunite upon the death of Absalom. Notwithstanding his victory, David knew that only the military phase of the rebellion was over. The discontent which had attracted men to his son's colors represented a measure of political ill will which had to be overcome, or at least substantially mollified. For any return to the reins of government to be effective, it was important for David to be restored as the Lord's choice of king with the recognition of the people, rather than merely to reimpose himself as a conqueror at the head of his army. You see the incredible difference there. It's too bad that 150 years ago some people didn't read this statement and take it to heart. But nonetheless, David did, not these words of this contemporary, but he took the teaching of scripture to heart with regard to what needed to be done. And he had in his heart not only great love for God, great love for God's law, his truth, but he had a great love for God's people, those chosen people, Israel and Judah. David determines to wait until he is asked to come back as their king rather than marching in triumphantly with his victorious army. He comes rather with a peace be unto thee. Peace be unto thee. He was waiting again in Mahanaim. And surprisingly, he was waiting for his own tribe, Judah, to issue an invitation for him to return to his throne. That's interesting, is it not, at the very least. We believe that David here is following the example of Jesus Christ that Paul speaks of in second, in Philippians 2, that is. Quite familiar passage. We're all familiar with it, I'm sure, where Paul says, have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus. I'm suggesting that David had this mind in him. Who existing in the form of God counted not the being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of man, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death, yea, the death of the cross. We just sang that rendition, that version of Psalm 51, broken, humble to the dust, David cried in Psalm 51, subject to God's judgment and wrath, his chastening wrath, his chastening judgment, bringing these things upon David, even including the death of his darling son. David recognizes that it is God that is doing this. 
have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We read in that passage of Paul existing in the form of God. Of course, David wasn't existing in the form of God. That's only our Lord Jesus Christ. And some people have a problem with that, existing in the form of God. And there's been heresies in the early church regarding the issue of the form of God that Jesus was. But I think that John himself settled all that in the beginning of his narrative of the gospel, his narrative of the life, death, resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, when he said, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that hath been made. He he was not only in the beginning, he was not only with God, but he was God. He is God. We think, of course, of that relationship that we read of in Proverbs 8, around verse 30, toward the end of that eighth chapter of Proverbs. I was daily his delight. The pre-incarnate Jesus is saying, I was with him, I was daily his delight. That loving relationship between the Father and the Son. Jesus Christ is God. And we would ask this question in our discussion of the life of David. Has David come to know himself far better after great sin and restoration? Sin that is followed by repentance. Again, Psalm 51. Sin followed by repentance and chastening. One of the fruits designed by God for that is to bring humility. To humble the repentant sinner. And David has been being humbled and he continues to be humbled as the people discuss bringing him back. And even his own tribe is questioning whether they ought to do that or not. David is being humbled. David exemplifies Christ in this. He takes the form of a servant. He waits upon the tribes, his people over whom God had placed him as king, but he waits on them as a a servant, even as he wrote himself, Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their master, so he looks unto these folk to call him back. He lays aside his royal robes. He doesn't come riding in in pomp and ceremony as the conquering hero, the conquering king. But he lays aside his royal robes, as it were. Don't look at my robes. Don't look at my kingship. Consider what God is speaking to you about bringing me back. He was absolutely determined not to enter the city and just insist upon his right as king, not to just take the throne, even as Absalom had desired to take it. He wasn't going to do that, but he desires the invitation of his people. There's a sense here where he was emptying himself. He was laying down his robe, laying down his royal apparel, 
laying down his crown, as it were. And please understand, I'm not suggesting that Jesus did any of these things. There's a lot of controversy about that, but I believe that when we read he emptied himself, and that is the word, and some decry it as excessive literality by translating it empty, but that is the word. And there are options, other choices translators have made. But I think that what we see here is that he, in a sense that we probably can't understand, he laid down the form. In other words, the outward appearance and so on. He took on the outward appearance of a servant, which also is expressed in those same words, that he took the form of a servant. Whether that's all of it or just part of it, I believe that that helps us. David typing out Jesus Christ here. Christ humbled himself. David humbles himself. Better to be bidden to come and take a closer seat than to sit in a seat up front. You remember that parable of Christ in Luke 14. The man that was ashamed because he came and took a prominent place, took a prominent seat, and the, and the host came up and said, excuse me, but that seat's reserved for somebody more important than you. Take a seat in the back. And with his hang, head hung down, he had to go back and take a lesser seat. And some writers suggest that he took the seat all the way to the back so that that wouldn't happen again. Maybe I'll even get called a little further front, but I'm not going to, I'm going to take the furthest one back. And there's a sense in which David, David is doing just that, waiting on the decision, the determination, the guidance of the people, whether or not to come back and resume his rightful rule over this people. Humble yourself. God will exalt you as the teaching here. Humble yourself. God will exalt you. And of course we know the people did bring him back. He humbled himself and God exalted him. Put him back in his place. Back upon his throne. The crown back upon his head. I remember <clears throat> the first Reformed Baptist church I was in in Michigan going up to a, a meeting of pastors. It was just a, a large handful. And I was traveling with uh, the pastor of the church of our membership before he became pastor of that church. He and I worked together. And he was Bob and I was David. Well, I was calling him Bob on the way up to that meeting in Flint, Michigan. I trust that was when the water was better. <laughs> but we were traveling up there and he interrupted me and asked me to call him pastor. Well, I, I took it as a, a lesson, if you will, and complied. I reflect on that and I thought that perhaps that wasn't the most humble thing that he could have done. But at any rate, it seems that, that with some people, 
that there's a concern for titles of dignity. I'm not, I want you to understand that I'm not challenging every single individual that insists on being called pastor. But I think it's sad that there are probably many that have a concern for taking titles of dignity and so on. And it seems to me that if one's dignity rests upon that title, that that's a cause for concern. Went to a family conference, a Reformed Baptist family conference. There were several hundred people in attendance on that. And toward the end of the week, they gave us a a list so that we would have the names of of all the uh, people, uh, the men in particular, and the families that were with him, the, the wife and the children, the number of the children and the name of the wife and their address and email and so on. Well, I, w- I knew, a, this was in Ohio, I knew a man in Michigan that had asked a, a pastor to ordain him. Now, this man didn't have a church, but his oldest daughter was about to be married and he wanted to perform the ceremony. So we asked this pastor to ordain him. I don't know if that was technically necessary for him to do that, I mean to marry his daughter, but nonetheless, this pastor, I think in error, ordained him without him even being uh, appointed by God to be the leader of the lead shepherd, the lead, the lead sheep, if you will, over a body of God's people. But the irony of that, and the reason I bring it up is because at this conference, there were at least 50 pastors in I looked on that list, and I wasn't looking for anything, but it stood out like a sore thumb, as they proverbially say. Not one of those men on there that was pastoring a church could you identify as a pastor or as a leader because they just had their name there, except for one. There was this one bold, reverend, so-and-so. And I'm sorry to have to say this, but I believe that that challenges that man's questions that man's lust for attention, if you will, challenges his integrity. He didn't even have a body of people over whom to pastor, and I wouldn't say that that was very reverent of him to do that. Just an example for you. I think it would be far better to be called what Scripture calls us to be, not pastor so-and-so, not reverend, certainly not right reverend, but perhaps example. How about if we had that for a title? Example David, example Chuck, example Mark. I'm being somewhat facetious, you realize, but that's the title scripture gives us. And that would be a better title to take. Do these men have a right to be called pastor? Yes, I won't argue. I would question the right to be called reverend, but I'm, I'm not going to go there this morning any more than I have. But the point is that Jesus in this passage in Philippians had every right because he was, he is God. But he didn't demand it. And here, as following Christ, is David. 
he had the right to come in in the front of his army. He had the right to demand that they receive him back, but he didn't do it, and that's the point. Humble yourself. God will exalt you. Leave it to God to exalt you. Jesus cared less for himself and his own things, is the point, for the love that he has for his people. David, I suggest, cared less for his own rights, his own things. He cares for God's people. He cares for the kingdom of Israel over whom God had placed him. And thus he exemplifies Christ, I believe. Need to be careful about titles. There was a Kentucky colonel, not the fried chicken one, but a Kentucky colonel nonetheless that was called in a trial to be a witness. <clears throat> and this uh, shrewd lawyer questioning him, who evidently had some inside information, said, now, sir, he said, you weren't really a, a colonel, were you? And this old gentleman from the South said, well, you got me there, son. I never rose above the rank of a sergeant. He said, the colonel title is just a, a title that my friends and neighbors allowed me to use, and they, they like calling me that, he said. But he said, it's, he said, it's like honorable before your name. It really doesn't mean anything. <laughs> David humbly waits. And I know speaking in the terms of David imitating Christ, who was born a thousand years later, is an anachronism, in a sense. Is Christ not the Alpha and the Omega? Is Christ not the beginning and the end? Is he not the yesterday, the today, and the forever? Was his spirit not in David? We can discuss that for the next, uh, the time that we have left on earth, if we wish. But I'm submitting that David was exemplifying not understanding completely what knowledge he had and so on, but in God's hand, he was exemplifying Christ. He was typing out Christ, and he was responding appropriately to Paul's language who was even a little further removed from David than Jesus, chronologically, he was heeding Paul's exhortation, have this mind in you. David had the mind. He had the heart of God, we're told. He was a man after his own heart. Here we discover that he had this mind, the mind of God, the mind of Christ. He humbly waits for the people to call him. He doesn't march in high and mighty. You remember what he said when he was packing his things, as it were, to flee out of Jerusalem when he was told Absalom is on his way and he's raising a huge army? And we see Zadak and Abiathar coming to him with the ark. David says, no, no, no. Take the ark back where it belongs. Carry back the ark of God into the city. He says, if I find favor in the eyes of Jehovah, he will bring me again and show me both it 
and his habitation. His faith is in God. If he finds favor with God, God will bring him back, and he trusts in that. Again, he's not looking for the pomp and ceremony. Taking the ark with him, that was a mistake that Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, made when they took the ark into battle. And that's when it was taken out of the hands of Israel. It is the spirit, Benjamin Warfield said, it is the spirit which animated our Lord in the act of his incarnation, which his apostle would see us imitate, and David is imitating that spirit. He does entreat their invitation. He entreats of them attention. He wants, he wants them to call him back. And even Jesus Christ, don't you believe that, that he wants us to long for his return? He wants us to long for his return. Can we not pray for his return? Matthew Henry said with regard to David, he would go back as a prince with the consent and unanimous approbation of the people and not as a conqueror forcing his way. He wanted to go back in peace. He wanted to go back peacefully. He wanted to have the approval of the people, putting their stamp upon it. Please come, reign over us. Isn't that what we cry unto Jesus every morning, as it were? Reign over us again today. Guide and direct us, lead us. We see a picture of Christ, of course, in his entrance into Jerusalem. Behold, it's repeated in the New Testament from Zechariah. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, what? Meek and riding upon an ass and upon a colt the foal of an ass. And Jesus himself, of course, has said, I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. He would be inquired of. That's not to suggest that that picture suggests that he's standing at the door knocking, please let me in, or else I can't come in. But he desires to be invited, to be inquired of. We read here in this passage that David bowed the hearts of all the men. He bowed the hearts of all the men. All the men of Judah. He inclined their hearts unto himself. Could we not say that he made them willing in the day of his power? The power of his grace and peacefulness. This was David patiently, humbly waiting to be called back to the throne. Here are my brethren, he says. Ye are my bone and my flesh. Wherefore then are ye the last to bring back the king? Do we want to, any of us want to be the last to bring back the king? I submit that none of us want to be the last but we wait upon him. We wait upon him. Jesus came unto his own. David was asking, why is Judah not calling me back? My own 
bone in my own flesh. They're the ones that aren't calling me back. What's the deal with that? Well, we read, of course, that Jesus came unto his own. Came unto his own. And they that were his own received him not. Heart-wrenching. And it is, isn't it, a sad but demonstrable fact that often our blood, kin, our kinsmen according to the flesh, stand most aloof from us because we maintain allegiance to our king. Now, there may be other reasons, and we each know what those individual reasons might be if we have issues with our, the members of our family and so on. But I believe that it's a demonstrable fact that many, many times it's because we're Christians. Many times it's because we maintain allegiance to our king. David goes on saying, say to Amasa. Now, you remember Amasa was the one that Absalom had appointed over his troops. He was also a nephew of David, therefore he was of the tribe of Judah as well, as well as David, as well as Joel. But David says, say to Amasa, art thou not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if thou be not captain of the host, captain of my host, captain of the host of Israel, before me continually in the room of Joab. That was a good political move. And we'll see later that it didn't turn out to be all that good a move for Amasa. But David was basically saying, showing the people, showing the men of Judah that he was stood ready to forgive if you just call me. Isn't that what Jesus has done? Let us know he stands ready to forgive. What are the first words that Jesus proclaims as, as written down in the narratives that we have in the Gospels when he began his preaching. Repent and believe. Believe that I will forgive you. Repent and ask me to forgive you. Old John Trapp commented that David did. He did bow the hearts of the people, he bowed them down before himself. He made them willing in the day of his power. And old John Trapp says, so doth God bow and draw the hearts of his elect by motions of mercy. Motions of mercy and offers of pardon upon their return unto him. Again, David is imitating God. He's imitating Jesus Christ. Imitating Christ's behavior that Paul speaks of in Philippians. Crying as Isaiah did. God did through Isaiah in 55, 7 and 8. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him come unto me and I will forgive. David's thoughts here were Likely not the thoughts expected by most of the people. They were probably surprised. They expected him to come marching in on a big white horse instead of an ass to use that figure again. They didn't, 
It's very unlikely that they expected this behavior from David. And isn't that a problem? Wasn't that a huge problem with the Jews? His own that rejected him because he didn't come in the manner that they expected. Riding on a great white horse, destroying the Romans. But he came meek and lowly. And they said, this can't be him. David's thoughts here were likely not the thoughts expected. But he's telling Amasa, you will be captain of the host. And telling all the people, I'm going to set this one that was the leader of the rebellion under Absalom. I'm going to make him, him captain of the host. Someone wrote, it is the duty of every citizen in the present condition of the country to do all in his power to aid in the restoration of peace and harmony. Could that not apply to this situation in Israel? This situation that we're looking at here in this passage. The duty of every citizen in the present condition of our country. We've just finished a huge war. We've just been blooding one another up. It is the duty of every citizen in the present condition to do all in his power to aid in the restoration of peace and harmony. Who wrote that? Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee wrote that in a letter just a half a year after the war ended, just a half a year after he surrendered to Grant at Appomattox. He wrote this in his acceptance letter to the trustees of Washington College in Lexington, Virginia. He was persuaded by his friends that they needed him because of his leadership ability, and he humbly accepted. But he wrote those words. Even though I'm somewhat concerned about accepting this appointment, is not worthy of it. It is the duty of every citizen in the present condition to do all in his power to aid in the restoration of peace and harmony. Only five years later, he died of a massive stroke at the age of 63. 63 years old. Imagine. Imagine if Lincoln had asked Robert E. Lee to succeed Ulysses S. Grant as commander of the forces of the United States as David had appointed Amasa to be captain of his host. People would hardly believe it. And some probably hardly believed that David was doing this. And some people didn't like it. Joab obviously didn't like it. But can you imagine if Lincoln had done that? How things may have turned out with a man that had the heart of Robert E. Lee. Let us call, even as David is asking the people to call him back. Pray for Christ's return, even as David wishes that these men of Israel, men of Judah, would call him back. So I believe that Christ would have us to call upon him to return. 
that he would have us to cry as we find in Isaiah 64. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou would come down, that the mountains might quake. Can I say again, at thy presence? Everyone might do, Matthew Henry said, everyone might do more than he does in the reformation of manners, the healing of divisions and the like. That's what Paul's calling to in Philippians. That's what David is seeking. That's what Christ is doing. Healing divisions, breaking down walls, bringing his people together in him. Our Lord Jesus will rule in those that invite him to the throne of their hearts. Again, I'm not talking about that knocking at the door thing, please. Understand. And I don't believe Matthew Henry was. And not until he be invited. He first bows the heart and makes it willing in the day of his power. Psalm 110. And then rules in the midst of his enemies. Well, Paul had a little bit more to say about this matter in Philippians. What was the reason that he gave? The reason that he exhorts them to have this mind. To have this mind in them. That is in Christ. Is it not this? Is this not the reason, the basis for it? If any tender mercies and compassions. Paul says, make full my joy that ye be of the same mind. The same mind as Christ. Having the same love. The same love as Christ has for his people. Recently, it was astounding me all the more than it ever has, meditating upon that call of Paul in Ephesians to love husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. How can we do that? But he calls us to it anyway. And here Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is calling us to have the same love as Christ, have the same love for one another. Being of one accord, of the same mind, doing nothing through faction or through vain glory. Well, we're thankful that there's never any factions in the church. We're thankful that there's no one suffering from vain glory. Or is there? But this is the call. This is the exhortation. Doing nothing through faction or through vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, each counting other better than himself, not looking each of you to his own things, but each of you also to the things of others. That's what David was doing when he humbly waited to be called back. That's what Paul calls us to do in the church, in our neighborhoods, in our community, whenever we have the privilege, the opportunity to represent Christ, have this same mind in you that was in Christ. Let us pray. Oh, Lord our God, we have already confessed how difficult this is for corrupt sinners to do. But, oh, Lord our God, thou hast called us to it. 
And that will enable us, if we pray and if we strive and if we fight the good fight, with thy help, we cannot do it apart from thee. David didn't do it apart from thee. And Christ was filled beyond measure with the Holy Spirit. Help us to imitate him, we pray. In his name, that name that is blessed forever, even the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The benediction, if you would stand for the benediction, it's found in Psalm 46. Psalm 46. Verses 4 and 5. Here's the blessing. There is a river. The streams whereof make glad the city of God. The holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her in that right early. 